Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. Steve English and Gordon Ritchie here during the warm-up session for the Portimao round of World SBK. And Gordo, without trying to sound too much like Donald Rumsfeld, we've got known knowns and we've got known unknowns after this weekend in uh, Portimao. We spent the whole weekend running up and down the paddock trying to find out what's going to happen next year, what we're hearing about teams, bikes, riders. And I think at this stage, no one still seems to have a clear picture. I think ultimately a lot of people haven't signed. There's a lot of people still unsure because they haven't actually signed. It's not. I think some people may have contracts in their pocket, but I think an awful lot of teams are still waiting on a rider. I think a lot of riders are waiting on a particular team, and I think we're just a little bit behind this year. I mean, two weeks ago this test, I came testing here, and it seemed that things were pretty. We knew pretty much what was going to happen, and actually in the last two weeks it's got less clear which is, you know, unusual. Normally, somebody will sign and everything's okay. But I genuinely think there's a lot of people who haven't got plans, budgets, whatever it is they need to sign a rider and be committed for next year. They're still actually thinking about it. And there's also a lot of options this year. There's quite a few people available. Yeah, because one of the things that we've been waiting to fall into place, we saw with Scott Redding confirmed to replace Alvaro Bautista but we've seen some things with Bautista in particular this weekend that just leave you with quite a lot of question marks we thought or assumed that he was signed, sealed and delivered to go to the HRC team We spoke to Alvaro the other day and everybody there left not quite sure what was happening he he told us what he was going to do next year without telling us who for and everybody left even more confused than when they entered the room um, and I think that's the there are surprise things to do no one knows what Honda's doing they seem to be recruiting people they seem to be uh, going to take a big step up um, but that's been a story for a while without any confirmation and without any advance or updates so maybe something else is happening I, I think they're one of those people who maybe absolute head office of still to make their mind up exactly what they want to do yeah, what I've been hearing about Honda is they're going to be based out of the same place as the MotoGP team in Catalonia. They're going to be run and financed by the same group of people that do the MotoGP project. So Alberto Puch is involved. They've been spending a lot of time trying to finalise that budget. But obviously Japan, basically the new year for Japan is post-Suzuki eight hours. So that means August is the start of their year. That That's when you go into a shutdown as well annual holidays so suddenly you come back in the middle of August the end of August and that's whenever you're able to get the budgets decided so that's really what seems to hold up the whole thing it's always been there's always the air effect for the Japanese factories Um, I think that's maybe a little bit less than it used to be because they have to do a strategy with a new model on the way Um, they they may have a a different uh, way of looking at it but yes in terms of now they've got it takes so much of their energy in the racing department to do the eight hour logistically everything every other way now that's finished we should have more clarity but honestly I thought we would have more by now Um, and what you say about the the team based in Spain yes that seems to be the most uh, frequently uh, spoken of rumour and there have been behind the scenes that there are obviously moves to do that but Again, we don't know if that's going to be the only thing or if they're going to also continue with some form of the team they have now, supported, not supported, or they just go with the HRC thing and that's it. Um, But, I mean, I've heard every rumour possible with that. It is quite amazing how you hear the exact opposite to that, whereby they're like, maybe they won't take it as big and seriously did. But 
from the sources I've got, I think that's what they're going to do. But I don't think they're going to do it in, in, in exactly the way that anybody's worked out yet. And maybe they just haven't made a decision. Yeah, because when you talked about Tista, he was saying a lot of things about... He could have lost opportunities in this paddock. He could have opportunities in the MotoGP paddock. He could have different things on the table. And one of the theories doing the rounds is that he's got three different offers from Honda with three different contracts. One to be a test rider, one to do the eight hours, one to race in World SBK. So while he mightn't be lying to anyone when he says that he's got all these opportunities and his future secured, maybe not all of his future secured. Yes, and that's the thing with the AG is now, um, and very, very experienced, he'd be a brilliant test rider. Honda's, if, if Honda's going to unify everything, MotoGP and then have a sidearm and superbike, who would be a better guy to be a test rider for them? So maybe that's the, there's an element of that involved. Um, it's, it's more confusing every day that goes by, literally, even after you've spoken to the riders. It seems to be getting more confusing. So obviously they like try and leave a wee smoke trail to not give away too many clues but I don't remember a year quite like this where this far along we haven't had we've had to go to BMW um, and Tom confirmed which we knew anyway but he was confirmed yesterday as well and Reading but there's a lot of other uh, possibilities out there Yamaha I mean it could be any number of Yamahas it could be six Yamahas next year and we still we only know a couple of the riders for sure yeah, that's the thing. We've got, uh, as I mentioned earlier on, known unknowns at the minute, and one of them is Top Rack is going to be on a Yamaha next year. That was pretty much decided over in Japan at the eight hours, and we're just waiting for confirmation on that. The rumour this weekend is Karakasulo has signed his contract with GRT. Again, that was largely expected that Karakasulo would step up. But then after that, it's Vandermark should be confirmed. He's met the clauses in his contract for being third in the world after, after Hareth. But after that, who else is going to get those seats? Lars Baz looks pretty secure at Tenkade. Alex Lowe's has an offer from Yamaha, by all accounts, to stay involved with Yamaha on a factory contract, just not with the factory team. And then you could end up with people like Leon Camiers being linked with the ride. Sandro Cortese's obviously done a pretty solid job this year, could easily stay with GRT as well. Yes, um, they, they, the way Yamaha's philosophy works, if they're going to have Van der Mark and Top Rack in the top team, then the GRC team is very much their young rider development team, which would mean the cat and Caracasolo is pretty much cemented in there. Um, that would allow Cortese to have a second year. They could also decide to uh, bring in another another young rider into that team. If Tenkata goes for two, basically gets the, enough sponsorship, which it should do, to run two riders next year then that gives Yamaha more options to use that GRT team for exactly what they've always said is we want to develop our own riders inside the Yamaha uh, tent. And so that might be more freedom for GRT um, to, to be able to sign a younger rider and, and they might even have a surprise for us there. Yeah, because one of the things for Tenkari in particular was whenever I talked to people within the, t- within the team, they said that getting a sponsor could be possible. But if they were going to run certain riders, they'd need support from Yamaha. And that's where the big link between Lowe's and Tenkade seems to have come from, just on the basis that if Yamaha are financing it, Tenkade are more than happy to have Lowe's third in the world coming into this weekend. A lot of podiums, very good in qualifying, had a really solid season so far. So Tenkade, with a team of Baz and Lowe's, would certainly feel pretty comfortable about being able to move forward. And when you talked to Alex earlier on this weekend, he talked a lot about the fact that the relationship 
relationship he has with Yamaha is still very strong and working with Tenkate, a team that can develop their own bike and not have to supply parts to everyone else. They're not the reference team. They can go down their own alley. That was something that seemed to interest him a lot. Yes, um, I mean, Alex is uh, he's a very experienced rider now in his own way. Um, he could bring a lot to the team, but the team could bring a lot to him. They have gone in different directions already from uh, the standard Yamaha um, that they've been given, even with all the, the trick stuff on it. They've decided to go in a different direction and they will continue to do that. And they've actually found some pretty fertile ground where they've gone to and they've tried a different um, chassis setup uh, last time out that was in the test that was actually quite far away from the other Yamahas, but it worked really very well. Um, they have won the World Championship. They are endlessly ambitious. They have changed manufacturers and that's given them a greater motivation. Tinkata would be a very good place to be right now given that they'll get support from Yamaha and they'll still have the freedom to do their own thing. And if things work out, they, they keep saying they're going to have a big sponsor. That should then allow them to have their own development budget as well as the development parts that come from Yamaha. So that, that to me, might be the place to go. If, you, if the factory bit rides are taken, the two part rides are taken, Tinkata might be the choice of place to go just because... And the other thing is, because Alex is experienced, he might be able to lead the development path even more than Loris or whoever else is there. Well, when you look at the changes Yamaha has made this year, it did seem like Lowe's was one of the key driving forces in that. With Michael Vandermark, Vandermark, as we saw this weekend in Portimao, being a really good example in race one. Vandermark struggled all the way through the practice session, struggled through qualifying. Once he gets to the race, he just bulls his way through and he makes sure that he's got the result that he needs. And one of the changes that Yamaha wanted to make to the bike this year was to try and make it a bit more race friendly. And a lot of that fell on the side of Andrew Pitt and Alex Lowe's, which try and develop a bike that was a little bit stronger on the front end. Obviously, Vandermark, always good on the brakes, always trying to be aggressive, but they've tried to move the bike more towards that style. And it seemed that just having that experience made a big difference for the development. That could easily help Tankare as well. Yes, and I think uh, there's also a good... Uh, they're both Northern European mentality as well. There's, there are slightly different mentalities operating in racing and I think the communication between Alex and the team would be pretty direct and there would be no uh, no possibility of anybody misunderstanding it um, they've had success with, with British riders and, and certainly Anglophone riders it, it seems like a very good match to me when I heard that Alex wasn't going to be in the team I thought well the best place he should be able to go is, is Tinkata because and it also might be massively liberating for Alex because he won't have that pressure of being a factory rider, that expectation. Um, I, I think that would be a, a really good mix as long as they got everything that they needed to make as good an effort as anybody else in the, in the paddock. Yeah, at the very least, you can have the exact same spec of bike from Yamaha as what you get with the Crescent team. So it could be a good situation. But what's been interesting for me is obviously we spend the whole time trying to find the little breadcrumbs of information try and put two and two together more often than not you don't get four you get 400 and you're thinking god what the hell do we know at this stage but one of the things that came to light over the course this weekend crew chiefs one of the most interesting things that you can do to try and follow what's going to happen there were some big news this week the big one being pete benson's going back to MotoGP to lead up the ktm test team and inside this paddock we've seen a lot of talk about who's going where in terms of the crew chiefs that who sits in that seat seems to be very important for getting the most from the rider. We've seen Top Rack make a massive step forward this year, working with Phil Marin at Pachetti Kawasaki. And talk seems to be that Marin's going to follow Top Rack 
to Crescent. If that happens, there's a lot of talk that Les Pearson and Michael Vandermark, that's going to split at the end of this season. Andrew Pitt's been linked to move across to work with Vandermark. Now, as far as you would have thought, if Alex Lowe's stayed within Yamaha on a Yamaha contract, you'd expect that he'd want to stay working with Andrew Pitt. When you talk to Lowe's, he's talked an awful lot about how good that relationship is in year two. Is that an indication that maybe there's still that outside chance that Lowe's moves away from Yamaha and the talk about the Kawasaki contact is very legitimate? That has uh, sprung up again recently. Um, there are several options for Kawasaki, as you would imagine. Uh, they've got, um, with uh, top racks going to Yamaha, which we all know, then that leaves a good space because that's a good ride. It's a podium ride for anybody. So they've actually got three places that, uh, two places up to grab out of three. And where people go, will they retain Haslam in the, the, the big team? Will he go to Pichetti? Um, there's plenty of possibilities for riders to come into Kawasaki if Kawasaki so decide, if that's what they want to do. Um, Lowe's is, is, was third in the world up until yesterday. So there's no reason why he, they wouldn't bring him in. But they have got options for other riders and, and they could have the pick of the riders because if you wanted to ride a, a bike in a, in a team in this championship, you would want to be in KRT and Ducati. To me, those are the two absolutely prime rides just based on the results of the last few years that's where you want to be um, so and the crew chief thing as you mentioned is just that's almost as uh, intriguing as the rider thing because yes riders who've got a good connection with a crew chief want to continue that with them they would take them to another manufacturer but the thing is crew chiefs are increasingly being employed by manufacturers not even just teams so they think well maybe I should stay with the manufacturer because it's a career Racing is so much of a year-by-year -year deal. Actually, the riders have got two- and three-year contracts are exceptions in this part of because most people, from freelance journalists like us through to the, 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 the crew chiefs and stuff, they, they're all on one-year deals. Mechanics, the guys that run hospitality and catering, everybody's on a one-year deal. Everybody in the winter is working towards keeping their job for next year. It's like a rolling contract. But, you know, people are willing to move, but if you've got a... a a proper contract with a manufacturer I think it takes a lot for a crew chief now to move because if one wrong move in the next year they could be out of a job if their rider's no good and they're still good maybe they get tarred with that brush and vice versa you know if a rider thinks you know he's got a crew chief he doesn't get on with or doesn't understand his needs yeah, because that seems to have been the case with Pete Benson and Marcus Ryderberger. When you talk to people within the team, they talk about the two just being polar opposites to one another right from the outset. And from day one, it's been a bit of a struggle. And that relationship is the most important thing. When you look at what happened with Top Rack out at Suzuka, one of the key things that seemed to break down his relationship with Kawasaki wasn't so much the fact that he didn't race on the Sunday. It was actually the fact that once he went to Suzuka for tests, he didn't feel like he was part of the team from the outset. And I remember hearing rumours before Suzuka that there was already a disconnect there and that he didn't really want to leave Pichetti to go to KRT. And then obviously when Yamaha comes up, that's the, the option that he has seemingly decided to take. But it's always interesting to see things like that. And as you said, for a crew chief, Marcel Dwinker being a really good example, he's stayed with Kawasaki for years through different riders, looks like he's going to stay on for another year, potentially with another different rider next year. Because when you talk to Pichetti, their shopping list for next year to replace Toprak seems to be 
Haslam, Camiers on it and Lorenzo Savadori. That all depends on if KRT bring in someone to replace or who they bring in. Um, if they bring in someone to replace Haslam and push him back to Pachetti. Of course, he's raced with Pachetti in the past. His contract comes from, or a lot of his key people in his in his side at Kawasaki come from Kawasaki in Japan. So they might be keen to put him to Pachetti, support Pachetti a bit more. Obviously, Pachetti lose a big sponsor after this year. And then maybe that frees up a bit of space in KRT as well. The thing we also need to remember is that uh, for the manufacturers, their championship is just as important as the riders' championship. When we talk about the world champion, we talk about the rider, but the manufacturers really want to win their own title and the team want to win their own title. So it's in the interest of the manufacturers to have at least two potential winning riders on their, their books. And if the top rack's going and he's won seven podiums this year, I think, so far, um, that's a guy you want to keep. And, you're, and if he's left the tent, you need to put somebody else in his position that can do at least the same as that. Now, that's a Haslam or a Lowe's and maybe a, any other rider that you mentioned as well. But that's a big deal for manufacturers. And three strong riders is better than two, especially if you're not directly paying for them all. If you can get your satellite teams to have really strong, potentially winning riders, then if one of your guys is a bit of trouble, your third guy, as it were, in the rankings, will be the guy that actually starts scoring those secondary points. Because the manufacturer's championship is based on your whole team and the team's championship as well. So it's in everybody's interest now not just to have a lead rider, but to have another rider that can take over, as well as any injury problems for your supposed lead rider. So I think people have got the budget. If they've got the budget, they'll just buy the best riders they can and match them up with crew chiefs that's going to work, which is the, the, the unseen thing. Racing is not arithmetic. You can't say, oh, he's the best crew chief and he's the best rider. We'll put them together and everything's fine. It doesn't work like that. It just doesn't, the human element is so big, especially in that kind of almost father-son relationship that a crew chief has got with his rider. Yeah, and uh, it'll be interesting to see what sort of way that plays out. We actually, when you look here in Portimao as well, this is another race where you look at top rack, 22 years of age, as you said, all the podiums this year, that's a real missed opportunity from Kawasaki to let him slip through their fingers. It does seem like a strange decision. It seems like a strange, uh, a strange occurrence. Um, but that shows the personal element. I think there was a degree of uh, huff in the, the decision for top right to go. Um, and that you can't control that. If somebody's made their mind up to go, it's like a football player being unhappy in the dressing room with his teammates. He's, they all could be great players, but he's going to end up going if he falls out with the manager on a personal level. It doesn't matter what they could do professionally. They will just end up um, splitting because... They have to because if you can't get on in a working environment in a competitive, the ultimate competitive industry is racing, um, then you're never going to succeed. It's going to be interesting for next year as well because a lot of people only sign on one year deals, as you said earlier on, Gord, were one plus one year deals. So this time next year, pretty much everyone in MotoGP is going to be available. Everyone in World SBK is going to be available as well. It's the first time in a long time where you could see wholesale changes. And one of the things that has happened over the last few weeks, obviously Johan Zarco confirmed that he was going to leave K uh, KTM at the end of this season and he's on the market as well. And I know a lot of teams here have been in touch with him. Kawasaki contacted him. Ducati's contacted him. Kawasaki, um, Honda's contacted him as well. But uh, be a surprise to see Zarco move across to here, but it just shows that the teams are trying to cast as wide a net as possible to find people. 
Yes, um, I think that the, they have to look at MotoGP guys now because they've obviously got a great experience, really good training. Um, they have got uh, generally got a broader experience of, of different uh, bikes than you do in Superbike now. I would say that Zarco is not a name that, that, that has been linked with a lot of different teams, but he's certainly available. Not every MotoGP rider that comes here makes a go of it. Um, some do, a lot do, uh, some don't. But the ones that do are the ones that are most open-minded about it, that actually maybe have had some kind of interest in it in the past. They haven't just run it off. They don't see it as a step down. The guys that come with a positive attitude are the ones that generally make it, uh, who are willing to say, okay, I'll give myself 100% in this championship as well. Um, if, it's, see, if people come over looking at it as a step down, then not, most of those guys just don't make it. And uh, just before we move on to talk about what we've seen here in Porto Mau, Gordo has asked an interesting question about you by someone. Indeed. It's actually a question for both of us, unfortunately. But if the police knocked on your door back at home, just randomly, some random Wednesday night, what would your missus think you'd been arrested for? Uh, non-payment of speeding fines. I was also going to go with traffic traffic violations for me as well. Violations in a foreign country when you don't understand where you're going or you're late for the airport and you misread the signal or you, every set of traffic lights in Europe's different. Um, yeah, I'd say non-payment of speeding fines. Yeah, and it's usually where we've just been completely screwed over by it and we've never actually received the notification as well. Going correct. No, that's absolutely correct. Yeah, honest, honest, hard-working uh, journalists would uh, always pay their fine, obviously. Uh, the trouble with uh, speed cameras and modern technology is that it's in some countries that you can get done for 1k over the limit for parking one inch over the the, the, the space outside your hotel uh, everybody's got different rules that is the problem Steve if we knew this we know what the rules are at home but we don't always know the rules when we're away and the best thing you can ever do is, is sign a bit of paper that they, the, the hire car company will pay the fine from your for your account and then it's all just taken care of but I've had a few I, I went through a long spell of zero zero tra- uh, traffic fines at all and the last few years I'm getting thousands of them not thousands that's an exaggeration 500 of them well I have to say I had one round where I had lots of zeros on uh, my fines and all of them were completely not my fault they were all as far as I could tell, the speedo on the car was obviously broken because it, it was quite close to the speed limit. There was no need for it to be uh, quite an extravagant fine like what I got six days in a row. That's your story, Stephen. You're sticking as long to as it, I can right? stick to it, it's all stick good. Stick to that story, you'll be fine. But I'll tell you what, Gordo, what's the story to stick to here in World SBK as well? Because when we look at what happened this weekend, we've seen Alvaro Bautista make more mistakes, give up more ground to Jonathan Ray, qualified badly, put himself in the wrong place on the run down into turn one in race one and just got bullied out of the way and ended up a good recovery ride to finish fourth in race one but just another indication of just how tough it is for Bautista despite all the speed that he had at the start of the year despite all the wins that he had at the start of the year when you're up against Jonathan Ray Pereriba Kawasaki it's just that sheer relentless nature of Kawasaki that they just keep grinding results and they grind down their opponents yes um the turnaround this season has been quite amazing um, but what you get from those guys is a 100% consistency and willingness to win making the steps to win and thinking about all the laps on Sunday not a part of the race not an, an idea about the race they know what they're going to try and do 
based on their experience and the track conditions. And it's amazing how often it works. And the key for Jonathan, the reason Jonathan's in the position he is now, is that even when he was getting beaten by Batista 11 times in a row, imagine what that must do for your confidence in your, as a four-time consecutive champion. His team obviously wobbled a bit, but they didn't break, they didn't change, they carried on, and Jonathan took the best result he possibly could in almost all the races. Hareth race one um, was a bit of an exception, but ultimately... He's always been there picking up. I think it was a great ride through the field from Batista yesterday, but he did end up getting in a bit of a mess in the corner. Yes, Davies admitted he was a bit aggressive in his overtake, but it doesn't seem they did touch. It was that he lifted Batista out of the way a bit. But that recovery ride through the field was quite amazing. Um, even though it was very noticeable that he used his, the power and the corner exit ability of his bike to just blast past the, anybody else and he, he actually admitted as much as he said that could, he couldn't get around people in the infield sometimes because of the nature of the way his bike works but when he got to that end straight he was just bang so he would wait a lap past someone wait a lap past someone but it was incredibly impressive but also from the rider the performance of that bike shows the way it is down the straight but I think that was one of his best rides since he came here even and amongst all the wins um, he was patient he managed to pick off the two Kawasaki riders at the end with some degree of ease because of his injury, but he kept it together and he ended up recovering what was a potential other disaster. And it doesn't turn out to be a disaster, it turned out to be a great recovery, um, which was actually quite enthralling to watch. Yeah, it was a bit like Mizano in the rain, where we all wondered, what's he going to be like in the wet? He hasn't ridden with the Pirelli tyres, he hasn't done this, he hasn't done that. And he just was nice and patient and built himself all the way up through the race and got through to finish. I don't know, it's a top five finish anyway. He could have been even on the podium or something like that, but strong race in that where he just sort of raced within himself. But as you said here, we saw again just another example of there's no replacement for displacement and just like being able just to use that power all the way down that straight compared to everyone else. Didn't even need the slipstream against the Kawasaki's. It actually looked like the first time he made the move, he looked at it and he thought, God, I wonder, did one of the Kawas miss a shift there or something because it was so massive the difference between them and like I think it was another we've seen it through the season the move that he made on Ray in Mizano in the Super Bowl race from the last corner to the start finish line you know that Ducati just has that grunt but we've seen again here in Portimao at least that that power is great on the straight but as you said Gordo in the midfield section here where it's so bumpy where it's really a challenge for riders it just doesn't seem to have that same level compared to Jonathan Ray. Maybe in the race two and then the Super Bowl race today, we'll see something a little bit different because Bautista knows what to expect in the run into turn one. But for me, talking to him yesterday, whenever he said, with a teammate like Chaz Davis, you don't need enemies, you're kind of looking at it and you're there like, Chaz didn't do anything wrong. Like if, if Bautista's in any other color of bike, you don't think anything of it. Bautista's not going to be Chaz Davis's teammate next year so Davis needs to reassert himself within the team he needs to be able to show that for next year he's the rider you need to focus your attention on and he did that yesterday he came through from 12th on the grid to finish in second and it was really positive to see that he was able to build on what he did at Laguna Seca to come here a very different track track that he's never really had great results in the superbike class in the past and be able to get onto the podium I think you see how tricky the Ducati is in general in the fact that Chaz didn't have a great qualifying. He didn't feel very happy on the bike. They obviously had to change a few things. He had a pretty bad super pole um, and had to do all that work in those early laps to get himself into contention. But when he did, it was vintage Chaz Davies. 
working away, not as fast as Jonathan in the first few laps, which is definitely something that needs to be worked on if it can be. Um, by the time he got up to the near the front, Jonathan was just gone anyway. But that was another great ride, you know, through the field in the first few corners. But that was a great turn, uh, turnaround from a not very good practice. By now, even after all the, the problems that Chaz had in the winter, that, you know, you would imagine Chaz should be in the top four all the time. Like, because he's on uh, one of the best bikes in the, in the most experienced teams and his own personal experience. But they're still struggling, so there's obviously not an easy motorcycle, that Ducati. When you get it right, it's unbeatable. But when you get it wrong, it, it's just like everybody else's. And that, at the moment, is the big reason why Jonathan moved 93 points ahead yesterday, is because wherever they go, they can make it work. And if they can't win, they'll be second. And if they can't be second, they'll be third. And any other result is, is unusual, to say the least. Yeah, because for me, one of the interesting things that we've seen with the Ducati is on full tanks, as you said, in yesterday's race, Davis didn't have that early lap pace or early race pace. We saw Jonathan race straight away down to lap records, surprising himself with how fast it was in those early laps. But uh, when you look at that Ducati, we talk all the time about it being a MotoGP-derived bike, and it's really a lot closer to a MotoGP bike than what we've seen from a traditional superbike. But one of the issues from that is the bike seems to have an awful lot more weight transfer than what, when you talked about Tista, than what you would expect from a bike coming from the Grand Prix paddock. And obviously a lot of that comes from the fuel tanks a lot higher in a World SBK bike and the chassis just isn't as stiff it has to be available for the road so maybe in those early laps that's still something that they need to find some improvement with whether or not they can actually find that improvement just because of the centre of gravity remains to be seen but it's definitely something that they're going to have to focus on over the winter Well I think it's quite easy to forget because the bikes are quite adjustable even in World Superbike is it is still based on a road going production model that someone somewhere said okay they've done their calculations they've worked everything out they've taken the, the basic design from MotoGP but they have ultimately had to create a product that they then can't change in MotoGP if your head angle is wrong you can change it if the centre of gravity is wrong you can move things around well you can't do that in the world so but you can do it to a level but you can't cut bits out of the chassis to, or make it weaker you can only make it stronger uh, and if it's weak in one area, you want it stronger, or strong in one area, you make it weaker. Well, there's only one of those things you can change. You can't, you can't take strength away from any area of the chassis. You can't make it more flexible and friendly. Um, so that's the big difference. You can, you'd have to get the, the calculations perfect, and there's no such thing as perfect, if you're going to bring a MotoGP bike to this this championship. If Yamaha, for example, made an absolutely replica of the the MotoGP bike and brought it here then it would find compromises at certain tracks, whereas they can adjust it more in MotoGP and they can change the whole model. There's nobody telling them we can't. There might be rules about testing, there might be limits on uh, various things, but ultimately, you can change something that's wrong with the bike, that you've found you've wrong, is wrong with the bike in racing. And the Superbike, you can't do that. You can only do it to a very small degree. And uh, just moving on then as well, Gordo, just towards the other classes we have here. We've got a couple of minutes left in the show. And just when you look at the super sport class, Krumenacker, Caracasulo, that's been the real fight all the way through the season. Krumenacker's really stepped up. But now in these final four rounds of the year, this is where he really needs to 
prove his mettle again and he had a big crash here on Friday he's going to go into this race knowing that maybe this is a round where Caracasudo's got an edge but Randy Krumbenacker he really needs to make sure that he's able to win at least two of the last four rounds to give himself that chance of winning the championship Yes and he crashed and broke his toe here um, which is not good um, it's obviously on his gear change side as well but yes it seems that Caracasudo whether it's the motivation uh, whether he realises he can actually still do it um, but Krumenacker has to concentrate all the way to the line now it's his to lose and he has to concentrate fully to get himself to the end the Yamaha has the best uh, bike to have in that class now it's the most modern bike and therefore the best um, we've seen other people making inroads into that we saw Mahias getting on the uh, into the top three yesterday when he didn't expect to so the Yamahas are still the guys to beat, the two Bardal guys are still the, the guys that are going to chase each other every weekend, but they have to, Krumacher has to do the hardest thing in racing, which is see it through to the end. And he has to do it against his own teammate, who's hyper-motivated, um, who doesn't have a disadvantage because he's in the same team. Whatever they're doing right, they're doing right for both riders. And he's, he's actually, he has got a bit more mature um, and measured recently Caracasula which he certainly wasn't for the first couple of years of his, his, his global career yeah Krumenacker needs to see it's the end and thankfully for the listeners they're also nearly at the end one last question for you Gordo you said there about Krumenacker has to see it through get across the line Manuel Gonzalez in the Supersport 300 class that's pretty much a foregone conclusion he's going to win this world championship there's three rounds left very commanding lead at this stage and Gonzalez has just been a cut above everyone else so far this year Yes, and it's amazing how you can do that in that class because you get riders who are cap- podium capable and qualifying and racing to 27th and 30th position. It's so cutthroat in that championship, it's unreal. It's, it's just incredible how they, there's so little difference between the performance of all the bikes. Um, but he's just been this year's standout rider, not because he's fast, because everybody can be fast, because he's been consistently fast. No matter where you go, what you do. That is a remarkable performance in, in that class. And a remarkable performance from you today, Gordo, as well. So uh, thanks for joining us again on the Paddock Pass podcast. It's been good to have you back on the show after the summer break. And did you enjoy your summer break? I did enjoy my summer break. I spent far too much of it indoors doing paperwork and sorting a few things out. Um, but yes, it was nice, but... I went to the test two weeks ago, I was glad I did, and I'm really glad to be back at racing. It's, even after all these years, you still get excited when there's a race weekend coming on, especially if you haven't done it for a while. Yeah, I was going to say to you as well, like it doesn't look like you got much of a tan, so I presume that was just because you were inside all the time rather than because the sun wasn't shining in Scotland. Uh, both. <laughs> both, me. Well, thanks for joining us, Gordo, and uh, we'll be talking to you again in a couple of weeks' time after the uh, Magni Core round as well. Cheers, see you then. Uh, thanks, Gordo, and thanks, thanks for listening. Gordo.